Good to see you, Renaissance Church. How are we? If we've yet to meet, oh, we got some participation here, some feedback. That's good for one of you. Um, my name is AJ, and it's a delight to be back, and uh, also a delight to welcome Winter back to our neighborhood. Clay was actually going to preach this week, and he was so depressed by the weather. He just said, man, I have writer's block. Just come in and just fill in for me. That's not true. But Clay did ask me to speak on the meaning of community from this passage in Acts 2.42, which happens to be um, one of the like seminal passages in my life. I've been following Jesus now since age uh, 15. So we're going on about 20 years now. If you do the math, you can figure out how old I am. Um, and this has been a passage I have come back to over and over and over again for many reasons. And we're going to get into that a little bit this morning. But one of the things, here's where we start, uh, especially with regards to community. One of the things I love most about New York is a four-letter word. Jazz. Jazz. I love jazz. The soul of jazz is the spirit of New York City in many ways. You know what I'm talking about, Renaissance? Is anyone with me? Is this a Bieber congregation? Is that what this is, right? No offense to the Biebs, but we're talking John Coltrane. We're talking Miles Davis, Wynton Marsalis. We're talking Billie Holiday. I mean, that is as good as it gets. And all of these people, Charlie Parker, they all made such seismic contributions to the culture of New York. And I think jazz speaks into where we're headed this morning in the scripture. Let me just read this to you by a guy guy named Tim Lyles. He says, the uninitiated listener, to the uninitiated listener, jazz music often gives the impression that anything goes, that chaos is the rule, and performers are playing any random thing that pops into their heads. This misguided impression comes from being exposed to only the simplest sugar-coated music, hashtag Katy Perry, music that deals mostly in two basic tonalities, major and minor, melodies that stay contained within the do-re-mi scale and rhythms that are so primal that there can be no mistake when the one, two, three, four is. Simple's good. And there is some jazz that covers that bass nicely, but Jazz music is expansive and moves beyond the simple. So we're going to get back into jazz in a second. Let me quote this passage just to get us going of where we are this morning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Now, jazz, speaking of Acts 2.42, jazz has many ingredients that make jazz work, but there's two primary ingredients that can never be lost if it's going to be good jazz. The first is this, standard tune. Now, when you look at this passage specifically about standard tune, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, there was a focal point in which the whole collective is playing off of, a foundational standard baseline, right? So this understanding that there's this sort of tune into the truths of Scripture where we agree to orient our lives around a foundational baseline of the story that we believe God is telling in the world and inviting us into. So imagine the first century uh, early Christians, they're asking, what tune are we going to join? Do we join the tune of the Roman Empire? Do we join the tune of the synagogue still waiting for Messiah? Or are there other tunes outside of paganism that we want to join that Jesus came to align us toward? So that's what's happening in the apostles' teaching. And then 
It says this, that they devoted themselves not just to the apostles' teaching, which I think was talked about last week, but to fellowship, right? This word koinonia, which we'll talk about in a minute. And here's where the improvisation piece comes in. Not only is there a standard tune that we're all singing off the same sheet of the scripture, but the improvisation of the community, fellowship, which means that it requires diversity. It requires gift mix. It requires creativity, innovation, that fellowship requires improvisation. And here is the beauty of jazz, where things begin to soar and get creative and clever. This is what makes the text come alive. Community is what gives a text, it's what gives the apostles' teaching color and vivid imagery and texture and improvisation. What I notice is this. Improvisation in a jazz piece is only as good as the contribution that the musicians choose to make. Are you with me? That it's only as good as those who insert themselves in the quartet, in the sort of whoever is playing in that instrumentality. It's only as good as they're willing to be innovative, as they're willing to improv off of the standard tune. What I'm trying to say today is this, your presence here matters. Your presence here shifts who Renaissance Church is, be it big or small. In some way, if you are absent from this community, even if you're visiting, it shifts the culture of who Renaissance is and who Renaissance will become. You are not a number. You are not here to fill a seat You are here to join and contribute to the sound and tonality of this community. And over time, the hope is that the music a church plays together becomes a tune in which the city of Summit believes is good news. That's the hope of community. I'm not talking about worship music when I use this metaphor. I'm talking about the music of your lives in relationship. I'm talking about community. I'm talking about fellowship. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to say a couple things about this text, and then I want to do three things. I want to share three ideas, three stories, and three questions, all in about three seconds. Many of you just got excited thinking about the prospect of getting to Winberries before the crowd. Let's go back to this text. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's begin with this word devoted, this word proskartereo in the Greek. This idea of devoted, notice it sort of modifies the four practices, and we're only going to look at fellowship today, but it modifies the four practices in this text, that there was a way in which they were with these things. They were devoted. This word devoted in the Greek, it means to persist in adhering to. It means to be intently engaged. In other words, following Jesus was not a casual pastime. There was merely a Sunday slot between 9 and 11. It was a radical intent. It was holistic. It, it moved into all of the crevices of your life and shaped how you saw yourself in this world, that they were devoted to these sorts of practices. They were devoted to fellowship. There was a radical intention. And then here's the word we're going to look at today briefly. It's the word fellowship. This word in the Greek, koinonia, it means sharing. It means overlap. It means intersection. In other words, the community or the the following Jesus, Christian spirituality, isn't just about you on a privatized journey to explore faith. At some point, you're invited 
to join a larger tune. At some point, you're invited to be a part of something bigger than just your story, but a grand story that God is inviting all of us into. This word fellowship, it means sharing time. It means sharing vision. I mean, that's what's so great about this congregational meeting, that you actually get to voice your longings, your vision, the things you're seeing, and longing for this church to continue to become, right? Sharing your time, your vision, and your resources. That if you aren't practicing these things with one another, this kind of overlap, then you're not doing koinonia. And that's not a critique. It just, it is what it is. It's probably more of networking, slipping in and slipping out. And yet what we find is that the early church was devoted to fellowship. I want you to think about these two terms. You have apostles teaching, right? Let's call that the scriptures, just shorthand. And then you have fellowship. And I, I want to I make sure we understand this before we get into these sort of three points this morning. When we think about the first Christians, I want to be clear that they didn't just have theology in their heads and then casually just hang out. That, those, that even the way in which the apostles' teachings, the scriptures, it filtered in through how they were together as a community. That it wasn't that Christian spirituality is about what you have in your head, and then you can go on and just hang out and do whatever you want, and we'll call that fellowship. It wasn't that casual. Fellowship is where we begin to embody the apostles' teaching together. It's where we begin to say the way of the scripture, the way of the good news of Jesus, the way of the practices and ethics of the gospel, we together want to embody that, that that's where fellowship happens, when we begin to live out that script together. Now, why does this matter? Let me just land this really quick just to make sure we're clear on this. Two weeks ago, there was a Sunday called Easter, Easter celebrates the fact that Christ is not dead, but is risen. That all of the attempts that we had to kill God, God defeated and invites us into a love relationship and has defeated death, ultimately. It's a beautiful, beautiful invitation, and I believe it's true. I've experienced it in my own life. And it begs a question. So great, so Jesus is risen. So where is he, right? To the person in culture, to the person in society, hearing this message that Christ isn't dead, Christ is risen, I think a good question would be, so where is he if he's risen from the dead, right? So the Christian teaching is that the scriptures show us that Christ ascended to the Father, and the question is, where can Jesus be seen? Where is it that we come to know that this story is true? His life, his character, his ways, his ethics, his kingdom. Where can we know that Jesus lives? through his church. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but have you, have you ever noticed that the New Testament refers to the church as the body of Christ? And I know maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe this is your first time hearing that. If you've heard it before, it's just kind of like, yeah, it's the body of Christ. It's the church. Whoa. The local church is the body of Christ. Let this sink in. In the absence, because of the ascension, in the absence of the physical body of Christ, the church is the place where Christ is designed to be most seen and felt and heard. This is why this matters. This is why community matters, because the way that you love one another demonstrates to the world how God loves 
the world. It matters how we show up for each other. Because mystically, we have been invited, and we're not perfect in this, not even close, but we have been invited to presence, to manifest who God is in the world. Not because we're special, because we've earned it, but because God is so loving and wants to woo the whole world into his family. I do not believe that the theology of the early church is what made it so compelling to the Roman Empire. I don't think it's because they had good arguments. I don't think it's because they had clever services. I don't think it's because they had necessarily good preachers. I think what made the early church compelling to a Roman world, I mean, you think about the message of the early church. Think about our theology, that Jesus said, the first shall be last, blessed are the meek, that the way to live life is to die to yourself. Who wants that? Who believes that? That the cross was like foolishness to a Roman society. That's what people did when they lost to Rome. They were hung on a cross. So why would someone believe that? I'll tell you why. It's because they saw the love of the community. That the community and the way that they were to one another, culture said, there is not another room in all of Rome where that kind of mutuality, devotion, love, restoration, forgiveness, and grace is practiced. So tell us what you believe now because we want to know why you're doing these things. I think it matters. I think it's inspiring. It was the way the community lived It was the way the community shared. It was koinonia, which raises the question, what does this mean practically in our time? Three things. Number one, I think it means, when we think about what Renaissance is called to in the city of Summit and beyond, the first thing that I think, one of many things, so these three things aren't going to be like the nail in the coffin and now we all get it and we can go out and just, it's, it's tied up in a bow. But the first thing is this, it's welcome over exclusivity. I think it's one of the first things that we find in the early church. And by this, I don't mean that the community is sort of relativistic in what she believes and just sort of believe anything. Remember, they were devoted to the apostles' teachings, right? I mean that that we're designed to have a reflex of welcome, not of barriers, not of borders, but a reflex of welcome to the outsider, to the stranger, to the newcomer. Henri Nouwen, one of my favorite writers, has this to say. He says, community has little to do with mutual compatibility. Let me just stop here. Almost all of my life, I have functioned in deep community that it's been about compatibility. Are we alike? In other words, do you remind me of me? Because if you remind me of me, I'll like you. That's how community can often work. It's not how it's designed to work in the church. In other words, similarities of education, Nouwen says, psychological makeup or social status, it can bring us together, but they can never be the basis for community. Community is grounded in God who calls us together, not in the attractiveness of people to each other. There are many groups that have been formed to protect their own interests, to defend their own status, and to promote their own causes, but none of these is a Christian community. Instead of breaking through the walls of fear and creating new space for God, they close themselves to real or imaginary intruders. The mystery of community is precisely that it embraces all people, whatever their differences may be, and allows them to live together as brothers and sisters of Christ and sons and daughters of his heavenly Father. That's good news. We do this thing once a year in our church in Chelsea called Alpha. And Alpha, essentially just shorthand, it's a room that we've created for about seven to ten weeks where we just invite our congregation to invite people to be in a conversation. 
And it's a conversation on spirituality, and there's no condemnation, there's no judgment, there's no shame. Everyone brings their thoughts to the table. And we just spend time listening, and we spend time engaging. We, we cater the thing. It's an amazing food, amazing wine. And it's just an incredible environment to dialogue around thoughts, to dialogue around the truths of Christianity and whether people can embrace them or not and what their thoughts are. And it's just a place of really radical welcome. So we just concluded it this year and um, about 100 people showed up to this thing, which was really encouraging in the city of New York to see our congregation inviting people and people being like, yeah, I'm very interested in spirituality. That's one of the things that I think people are shocked about New York and even places like Summit. I think people are more interested in spirituality than ever before. I think the community has a lot to do with what it means to embrace our truth. Do we love one another? Do we embody these truths? So anyways, this leader at Alpha told me about this girl in her group. This girl had been coming. She grew up in New York, raised in Brooklyn, went to school in the Bronx, and just lifelong New Yorker. Just someone who's just salted the earth, been around forever in New York, and just loves the city, right? So after seven weeks of this, this is what she reports to, to one of our leaders. She said, I've grown up in New York, I have never felt loved, cared for, and welcomed like I have these last seven years. I've never felt like home, and I don't even believe what you believe, but I've never felt more at home than I have these last few weeks. And then she went on to say, I've noticed that my life to others has been noticeably different since walking in these doors fascinating thing. Now listen, I have no idea what she uses to explain this phenomenon, but I name it the power and the joy of a community living in resurrection life. Christ present in us and Christ moving through us. So here's a question. If you've been coming to Renaissance for more than three months, are you outward facing when you show up on Sunday? I mean, let's just think about Sunday for a moment. We have this new saying in our congregation. It goes something like this. At the end of every service, there's a benediction. And this phrase comes out every single week from one of our staff. Let there be no stranger among us. In other words, when you gather to leave and to go out into the world, what would it mean to really welcome the people around you before you leave? I mean to get curious about them, to be here for more than just your own personal needs, but to care about the people around you, What would it look like over the course of a year if every single week, at least two or three people, I was just passionate to say, they're a stranger to me. I want to change that. And I can do that. I have power to do that by welcoming them, by getting to know them, by not allowing any stranger to be among us. There's this sort of reflex. There's two different paradigms in this. And I think I've shared this before here at Renaissance. The first is this. Here I am, where you walk into a room and you long for and are entitled to the the community to gather around you, your interests, your gifts, your needs. Sometimes that's really needed and helpful. But there's another impulse. There's another reflex. It's not walking into rooms saying, here I am, but it's walking into rooms saying, there you are. That is a totally different fundamental shift in how you show up from one place to another. And some people go through their whole lives as here I am people. And it's often disappointing. When it works, it's often inflating to the ego, and that's not healthy for anybody. But what would it look like? Especially if you've struggled to connect in this church, which happens in every church, by the way. It's just a sheer product of numbers. 
what, what would it mean for you if you've been coming for a few months and maybe you struggled to connect? But maybe instead of demanding that the community says, there you are, and you thinking, here I am, what would it look like for you to invert that and for you to approach this community saying, you know, I wish it would have been a there you are community when I showed up, and for some of you it has been, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play out what I really wanted when I came in through these doors because I've been tracking and people come in every single week that have never been here before and I want to make sure that there are no strangers among us. So I'm going to practice that which I myself wish were true all across this community. And in some ways, this community, better than most others I see, is so good at welcome, at non-exclusion, of making room for the other and longing to bring people in. Let's move to the next thing. Aside from welcome, I think true koinonia embraces feasting over fast food. Now, what I mean by this, when I say fast food, I'm not talking about whether or not it's biblical to eat at Burger King. Um, Although, have you heard they have hot dogs? (laughs) Interesting, right? Um, There they are, everybody. Has anyone, by the way, just, has anyone tried a hot dog from Burger King? Just honest confessional moment. We got one over here. Anyone else? Anyone else? I... You know, you can be courageous. It's fine. Safety in numbers. We'll love each other. Well, it, welcome, not exclusion. We'll welcome you in this place. Um, I think, it, just, to, just to sort of aside here, I think it's strange. Burger King. <laughs> Burger King selling hot dogs is like Taco Bell selling ribs. You know what I mean? It's like, your name's the king of burgers. Like, just ride that out. Just be good at burgers. If you, if you do that, you'll be fine. People love them a good burger. When I say fast food, I, I don't mean Burger King. I mean efficiency. I mean like regular eating where relationship is rarely explored. That's what I mean by fast food. Sociologists have this understanding now that's, that's different, shifted in the last few generations. They say in generations past, we dined together. I mean, think about Downton Abbey. They got dressed up for dinner every night. It's amazing, right? Even downstairs, they were, they were gathered around the table. No one eats fast food in ancient times. No one eats fast food typically in cultures of the past. It's a new phenomenon. Sociologists called grazing, that we just sort of eat as we move along in life. We don't stop to get curious about the people around the table because we don't have time. We don't have energy. We're important people. And we're just not that curious anymore like maybe we used to be. Now we simply graze. We eat with our televisions on, our cell phones in hands, and our curiosity about others around the table turned off. That's the sort of moment that we have begun to live into. And that's an issue, particularly for Koinonia. I suspect that history will remember our generation as the most over-connected and yet under-communed people in human history. We are so connected, it's not even funny. And yet we're starving to be communed with. We're starving for deep relationship, for conversations that go beyond weather, conversations that go beyond followers, go beyond hits, go beyond whatever is just sort of on the surface into something deeper, something truer, perhaps something more beautiful. There's this thing that we realized this was a problem four years ago in our generation. So we said, we as a church, what, what can our little contribution be? And so we created this thing called the First Tuesday Feast. 
And it's basically a glorified potluck, only no casseroles allowed, right? Um, the casserole's not good news, but other things are really good news. So the idea was, hey, everyone, bring a dish, contribute to this table, and what would it look like to invite our church into an amazing potluck where according to your resources and means that you would bless the community through food. And so we show up every single month on a Tuesday. Our church is invited to feast. There's no agenda. There's no strategy. There's no, there's no, there's no hook to it. It's invite your colleagues if you want, many of whom have such a negative impression about the church. And the church can be such a beautiful place of love and mutuality and grace that we need to create environments where people can step into that and to say, wow, you guys actually do take Jesus seriously, who feasted a lot, who was a good hang, who seemed to be someone that attracted people to him. And so I, I, this is something that we wanted to do because I think, I think there's something about having an agenda of sharing and curiosity, and that's it. That you come in, and you're loved, you're seen, you're heard, and we eat together. There's a story right after Jesus' resurrection that I think Clay taught on a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's called sort of Walk to Emmaus, where Jesus is talking. He shows up to these two guys who are so disappointed because Jesus died. They thought he was going to be the Messiah, but he died. And so he shows up after being risen from the dead, and they don't even recognize him. In other words, they're so caught up and they're so preoccupied in their own interests and concerns that they don't realize the person they're mourning is standing right next to them. And what happens is they open a meal together. They break bread. And something beautiful happens when they break bread. And I think this metaphor is true. When they open up bread, their lives open up and they can see differently. It's almost like Food is designed, if we, if we eat properly, if we eat around a table, if we see one another, food is designed, it, it's symbolizing what is designed to happen in our hearts. As we break bread open, our hearts are designed to be broken open as well. That what happens to the food is sort of preempts what's, what's supposed to happen in us, where we can share who we are and we no longer have to hide and we can actually open up to the people around us and begin to be known, to begin to truly feast together. And so here's a question. When do you intentionally dine with others to break life open? I mean, think about it. Your family and friends, without any grazing, any distractions, there's just a, a, an intentionality around coming together and being with one another, right? Because I think if we're not careful, we default into grazing the rapidity and pace of our lives is so fast that we just struggle with this simple principle that I think actually yields some really staggering results. And so what I'm calling you to is this. I'm calling you to radical intentionality. Listen, Renaissance has some incredible ways to get involved, especially if you're new, with the project, with small groups. Many of you have been tracking for a while. I would ask those of you who have been tracking for a while this question. How intentional are you with the people around you? Are you just sort of grazing through life with them? What tables are you setting to invite people around you to dine, to go beyond surface life and to open something up together? And I think it's great when church can provide First Tuesday feasts and the project and the small group, but let me just say, like, we aren't designed to just fit into programs. We're also designed to take initiative, 
for you to say, I've been coming for a while, what would it look like for you to say, I'm just going to create something and invite people into it that are in my path that I really want to get to know and explore more depth with? Like, what would it be like for you to join and to make that note in this jazz quartet, in this community? The third thing is this, welcome. Talk about feasting. And now let's end by talking about gratitude. And when I mean gratitude, I mean gratitude over cynicism. So often when we come together, I notice about my heart, it's so easy to veer to the lowest common denominator happening in my life about the things that I'm disappointed with, the things that I wish were different, all of the things that I'm disillusioned by and just complaint, right? And there's definitely a place for that. Like that needs to be shared. We're designed to mourn with those who mourn. We're designed to share those things as well. But I will say often what happens in a culture is that you can get to a place where you realize the things that are bringing us together and the things that we share most are our complaints about life. And that's not necessarily generative. That can be sort of like a place where you go and you just, nothing actually transforms, nothing actually moves beyond that. You just learn to gossip and slander and complain and that sort of becomes community. And that's not helpful. It's certainly not hopeful for someone looking out in from the outside saying, what is it that you have? What is it that you're wanting to communicate to a world about this Jesus that you know? How are you being together in a way that should entice me, that should be hopeful for me? So I've noticed this in my own heart. So Elaine and I, my my wife, we created this little marriage group that we do once a month. And it's super simple. Again, everyone brings a dish and we just feast and we hang out and we talk and we laugh a lot. We bring our kids. But before everyone leaves, we have a moment for about a half hour to 45 minutes. Actually, it turns into that, where we just stop and we cultivate gratitude. That no matter where you are in life and what's happening right now, that there is a place, there are places in your life where joy is meant to be found. Whether it's as simple as that next breath that's a gift, by the way. We didn't earn that next breath. It was given to us. Or whether it's just something like celebrating a victory in your job or your career or your family. Whatever it might be, There are places in our hearts that need to come out with others where we can celebrate with them. That even in our worst seasons, there's something to say, I will not allow my circumstances to override the joy that God has for me. I will not empower the hardships in my life to determine who I am and how I show up. That I choose to actually live in joy. That there are things that I can reveal that are happening in me, to me, with me that I should celebrate, and I should celebrate with others. And so we'll take time, and we'll just say, what are you grateful for this season? And what happens is, person by person, as we go around, it's like this onion that we peel back these layers, and you begin to know people. You begin to celebrate with them. You begin to say, that's incredible. How can I, how can I join you in that story of celebration and before your life? And it's incredible what happens in this, to see all of the layers come back. I love what, I love what, again, Henri Nouwen says. He says, the real question isn't what we can offer each other, but who we can be for each other. I think there's something there. There's something there about showing up for other people in our lives, about stepping into their you are's everywhere that we go. And so here's a question. With whom should you regularly cultivate more gratitude? Who in your life right now Do you just need to get more intentional about less complaint, maybe less gossip and slander, maybe less disappointment, and really just say, what does it mean for us to shift the culture of our relationship to really cultivate joy? 
to really celebrate life. It's just too short to not celebrate and to walk in that way. Welcome. Feasting, gratitude, certainly isn't the whole enchilada, but it gets us in a direction that I think is hopeful, that I think is generative. What would it look like to cultivate those in your life? To take this season, especially as we head out of winter into spring, when people love to be outside, love to grill together, love to make plans to actually be together, what would it mean for you to take that to another level of intentionality this season? Ernest Kurtz, in conclusion, he's the historian from Alcoholics Anonymous that I've been really impacted by and I quote a lot. He says, while spirituality can be discovered in solitude, by retreating to a cell of some kind, by reading, by thinking, by meditating, praying, it can only be fulfilled in community. And in a world of hyper-individualism, where faith is all about you and God or you and whatever you call that, whatever you call God or your pursuit of faith or your pursuit of belief, it really is only fulfilled in the we component of this because we need each other. We see we see what we can become together and it's so much more than we could ever do apart. And I would say that the quality of your community will determine the effectiveness of your witness. One of the things I love about this community is it really wants to make a difference to the city. It really loves Summit. It really loves being a community of joy and hope and love, a different sort of place it's not typical of what many people think that the church has become. And I would say that the effectiveness of that in this city isn't contingent on how good the teacher is or the band, although those are helpful things. It's about the quality of the relationships in this room. That you are a plausibility in many ways as to whether Christ is really risen. That's hopeful. That's hard, but it's beautiful. It's certainly challenging to say, what does it mean for me to step into that? That I believe God has a habit of changing cities through communities, not through individuals, but through communities coming together saying, who can we be for each other and who can we be for this city? Let's stand together. When I give you a benediction, I want to bless you as you leave and as we go out into this city. May you, Renaissance Church, whoever you are in this, even as individuals, whoever you are right now, may you bring a note to this church because this community has a song to play in the city of Summit. And I pray that it is one of the best jazz tunes that this town ever hears. So let us go in peace, and may there be no stranger among us. Thanks be to God.